Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. And they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Here ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Certainly not going to do the uh, raise your hand on this question, but you know, who's dealing with interpersonal conflict right now? I mean, if there's any kind of, if there's any drama in our lives, it seems like it is always uh, or frequently connected directly with some kind of interpersonal conflict, you know, within a marriage, within a family, at work, with friends. If there's something that tweaks your heart, it's like, oh, I have conflict with this person or with these people. And what we see in scripture is that consistently God uses interpersonal conflict to both deepen our spiritual growth and to expand his kingdom. It is a tool that God uses. Um, early in my police career when I was still a uh, patrol officer, so the way things generally work, I think in just about any municipal police department is, you know, the squad that you work on after you take your calls for service for the day is the day they overlap the shift so that the, uh, the squad that's finishing up has an opportunity to go into the report writing room and um, you're trying to, to take care of all of your paperwork at the end of your shift before you have to go home. And on one particular day, I'm in there. And, and of course, there's lots of talking that, that tends to go on among the uh, the people that are in the, the same squad there. And I'm in there working and there's one particular guy, a guy named Rob, and he is known for just being a talker. He's boisterous, frankly, he's obnoxious, another police officer. And he's in there and um, he starts popping off and he makes some smart aleck comment about, about me. And um, so what do I do naturally within the next few minutes he makes a mistake in some way. I also publicly make a comment, a jab right back at him in front of everybody. Well, um, the room eventually kind of clears out, people leave, and the only two people in the room are Rob and me. And uh, of course, I'm thinking, boy, what a jerk. 
him. And uh, um, all of a sudden, he just looks at me and he goes, you hurt my feelings. I thought, these are cops, you know, grown. And so what did I respond with naturally? I looked at him and I said, well, you hurt my feelings. And um, what came out of that was a friendship that deepened um, and when you fast forward through time, I ended up being a groomsman in his wedding, and then eventually he was killed in the line of duty, and I was a, uh, a pallbearer at his funeral. And as a result, um, no credit of mine, completely of the Lord's, but um, I had an opportunity then to present the gospel to, I don't know, maybe well over a thousand police officers, the governor, and, and uh, basically everyone that knew me from my police department. And so I can look at this and I go, wow, our relationship started with conflict. That's, when you take it back to the very beginning, out of pride, he said something, and out of pride, I said something. He was a believer, I was a believer. And then what ended up happening is, is certainly a, a, a deepening of my spiritual growth, but then later, much later down the road, was an opportunity as God, in God's providence, to even expand the kingdom. And of course, we see that all through scripture. That concept is just, it runs all the way through scripture on this, you know, this macro level. Of course, you have in Genesis, the conflict between Joseph and his brothers. I mean, my goodness, they throw him in a pit, they sell him into slavery, that's conflict, that's family drama right there. And then you get all the way eventually to the end of Genesis, Genesis 50, 20, you know, what you meant for evil, God meant for good, so that many people could live as, as it is to this day. So um, this tremendous blessing comes out of, some, of, of a, really a tremendous amount of conflict, um, not the least of which, of course, is the cross itself, where you have the ultimate conflict and the ultimate blessing. But we have that not only in this macro sense across all of Scripture, but we have that same thing happening even within the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 12, uh, Herod kills, has James, the brother of John, killed for his faith. And then he also imprisons the apostle Peter. Peter is miraculously released at that time as well, but he, Herod still goes about chasing down Peter. And in all of that conflict, eventually Herod dies. And then it says in Acts 12, 24, but the word of God increased and multiplied. So we had this tremendous amount of conflict, even death taking place, but the end result was that the word of God increased and multiplied. And then again in Acts chapter 20, there were these two guys who were going around and casting out demons um, in the name of Jesus, and then one of the demon-possessed men actually strips those guys of their clothes and beats them. And it was so shocking that other people, other Christians, people that had actually turned to Christ, saw all of this happening, and it freaked them out so much that those that still had, um, you know, things, that still had connections to some of these uh, demonic things in their lives actually burned them all and got rid of them. And at the end of that account, it said as well, in, uh, in Acts, actually I believe is Acts 19, 20, where it says, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. 
Again, we see this, this conflict taking place, this intense personal conflict, but the end of that episode in each of those is the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. We look at these accounts and we go, wow, praise the Lord that in their situation there is conflict and that the end of it, that the word of God increased and multiplied or the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And we see again a conflict taking place in Acts chapter 6 and in verse 1 where it says, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, nobody wants to see widows being neglected, but perhaps when we think about the conflict that can take place and the intensity of conflict that results as the previous accounts that I mentioned did, where the word of God is increasing and, um, and, uh, that, and that it prevails mightily, you go, well, is this idea of the widows not being taken care of really as bad as James being killed, Peter being chased down to be imprisoned, um, as these guys being stripped and beaten by demon-possessed men? Does it really fall in the same category? And I would say we have a problem here in verse 1 of chapter 6 that exists to this very day. It's the kind of thing that we're faced with even today. There is a discrimination that is taking place. It's a cultural discrimination. It's not necessarily a racial discrimination, but it's a cultural discrimination. And we know what that's like. Even in our culture today, we're faced with it frequently. And lots of accusations fly about, around prejudice and around, um, around discrimination. And, you know, even, and it's based on language. So essentially, the Hellenists. It's saying here, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. So the two groups here are Jews. The entirety of them are Jews. However, the ones that are being referred to as the Hebrews are the ones that have been brought up, essentially, in the faith and have been taught the, the, the language they spoke among the, the people, which was Aramaic, meaning among the Jewish people. So they're being brought up in uh, in the faith and being taught Aramaic and being taught the ways of that Hebrew faith. Then you also have Jews who, who by ethnicity, they're Jews, but they don't necessarily live in Jerusalem or even if they do, they, they weren't really brought up in that environment where they're being taught all of these things, the Shema, and, and they're certainly not being taught the Aramaic language that they spoke to each other. They were Greek-speaking. So I don't know if you've seen this. We live in Phoenix, and there is a significant Hispanic population, but I know that I've witnessed this where there will be um, a, a, a two different people that are Hispanic, but when one of them realizes that the other one does not speak Spanish, there's automatically a certain uh, conflict or opinion that's cast oh, you don't speak Spanish. You, you might be Hispanic, but you don't even speak Spanish. There is a language, uh, even, even though uh, they, ha they share an ethnicity, there is a division that takes place. 
You know, when uh, Michael Amati was here a couple of months ago, it, you know, it, it's always interesting to hear about somebody else's issues. And when Michael was here preaching, our missionary, he gave the example of in Ireland, and we were asking him questions about, hey, can you go here and get Bibles or, and everything? And one of the major problems he had was, even though it's not that many miles away, was Northern Ireland, and there was this whole sense of, you can be a Christian in either place, but as soon as somebody figures out, wait, you're from Northern Ireland, or if they're from Northern Ireland, wait, you're just from Ireland, there is an instant in the DNA, in a sense, in the fabric of the community, generational conflict between these groups that actually stands in the way of ministry, even within the church. They struggle because there is a difference between Irish and being from Northern Ireland. So uh, these cultural discriminations take place and we have this internal conflict taking place within the church itself, the early church. So the widows who are supposed to be taken care of, I, I don't know if it's exclusively a limited number of hands to get the work done or if it's a limitation on the resources of what's being given out, but when lines are being drawn about who gets something, as far as the widows get, are concerned, who gets some and who does not get some, it appears that the line is being formed between if you're a Hebrew or if you're a Hellenist, if you're a Greek speaker, or if you came up kind of in the church. Like, oh, you might be in the church now, but you really weren't raised in the church. So therefore, um, when cuts have to be made, you're not, getting, you're not getting taken care of. So you can imagine the emotion that comes with that. You know, when it's somewhere else, you know, Ireland and Northern Ireland, you go, wow, that's really messed up. But when you think about the discrimination or the, um, the conflict that takes place right here in our own country over, uh, over race and over other things that divide us, you know those things run very, very deep. And even, a, even, even though they are sharing um, uh, a same faith that those things still lie under the surface and they have to be dealt with. Well, the problem wasn't only that widows were not being tended to and that and there was a, uh, a division here between the Hellenists and the Hebrews. But the other problem is what we see in verse 1 where it says, a complaint by the Hellenists arose. Now, the way that it's uh, translated there makes it sound like, hey, we've got a complaint, we'd like to formally lodge a complaint. But the Greek word behind that is they're complaining. So what you have is not only the, the original problem, you also have the additional problem of those that are, uh, that are being neglected are, doing, are whining, are murmuring, are gossiping. They're complaining about it. So you can see this thing starting to bubble, both sides. There is, the stage is set here for a major division within this early church. So then when we look at the solution to the problem in verses 2 through 6, there are four observations. And the first observation that I would make is what we do not see take place. What you don't see the apostles direct them to do is to hunt down the offenders. They're not trying to make sure that they prosecute the people that are doing this. 
Now, don't get me wrong. There is a time and a place, Matthew 18, if an individual is offended and you should go directly to that person, you don't just gloss over it like it never happened. But what we have here is a widespread problem. It's a legitimate problem. There are widows being neglected and they're able to look across this and go, okay, they're complaining about this issue. It's a legitimate issue. This needs to be solved. But they didn't start by saying, okay, well, let's, let's start naming names. Let's see if we can figure out who is at fault. Instead, what they were doing is they were seeking reconciliation. That's what the priority was. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the first two verses, it says, when one of you has a grievance, against, a grievance against another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? What's going on here is Paul, in his letter to the church in Corinth, is trying to say, hey, don't, look, when you've got a beef, with another Christian. Don't go dragging them to court. Don't go trying to look for ways to point fingers and to say, you're the one at fault. I'm right and you're wrong, or let's have somebody, or at least I'm 70% right, and you're, or you're 70% wrong and I'm 30% right, and oh, wait a minute, that doesn't work either. So instead of slicing this thing up and trying to assign blame, this solution to begin with is based on a desire to solve the problem and to identify and to, and to create reconciliation within the church. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as Christ, as God in Christ forgave you. And then Colossians 3.13, Bear with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So the first observation going into the solution about this legitimate problem is that the goal is reconciliation. The goal is how can we solve the problem, how can we resolve the conflict and gain reconciliation without this focus on trying to make sure that we point fingers and that we lay blame. The second observation is here in chapter 2, and it has to do with who is it that they bring together to solve the problem. Verse 2 I think I said chapter 2, verse 2, chapter 6, verse 2, it says, and the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples. So they bring together the entire church, all of the disciples to solve this. Now, in one sense, that's a very practical answer. God gives us solutions that can be very practical. In fact, in Genesis, remember when Moses, the poor guy, was trying to do absolutely everything by himself? God sent Jethro. Jethro saw what was going on, and he, he pulls Moses aside, and, hey, buddy, <laughs> this is too much. This is not good. You're trying to do all of this yourself. And similarly, we have the apostles who see that there is a legitimate problem at work, and they call together the whole church. And I would go beyond saying that this is a practical solution to bring the whole church in on this. I would say that the apostles... Uh, are congregationalists. In other words, they're getting the entirety of the church involved in, a, in solving the problem that involves the whole church. The apostles don't just show up. The church turn to them and say, hey, we've got an issue. What do we do? And them say, okay, this is, this is exactly how things are going to play out. And you're going to see here in just a minute that it's the church itself that is involved in 
the solution. This is perfect that just uh, within the next couple of weeks, we're going to have another one of our member meetings. And the reason that we have these regularly, one of the reasons that we have these regularly, is because you, as part of the congregation, are part of the health of the entirety of this church. In fact, not only are you part of the health, you are going to be held accountable for your contribution to the health of this church. In fact, in Acts chapter 15, before Paul and Barnabas went out on their missionary journey, it says explicitly that it was the whole church that came together to decide who was going to accompany Paul and Barnabas. In Matthew 18, I mentioned that earlier, even though you go one-on-one -on -one to resolve conflict, if that doesn't get it done and it kind of grows and, and you progress along that Matthew 18 process, if it actually gets to the point of having to um, excommunicate someone from the church, it is the church that does that. You present it to the entirety of the church, the membership. You bring them all together and you say, this is what's going on. It's the whole church that decides to excommunicate. And then in 1 John chapter 4, we see that it's the entirety of the church that's responsible for the purity of the doctrine. You don't get to just show up and say, he's the elder, He's the pastor. He said it. It just must be true. And so that's just what I do. No, that you also have a responsibility to make sure that what you're hearing being taught is accurate. Of course, leaders are held to a higher standard. Scripture says that. But there is always within the church a level of responsibility that is borne by the members of that church. This is an important thing to keep in mind when you come here, that, the, that, that it's not just the relationship between each of you individually and the guy standing up here, it is the relationship that takes place with the people across the aisle or that sit up three rows you know, from you. You are also responsible for the health and the maintenance of this family, of this church family. And so we see that the apostles, when they are faced with this, the potential of some serious conflict and a serious rift, they engage the whole church. They bring them all together. And then the third observation, so the first observation was, remember, was that they didn't seek prosecution. They were looking for reconciliation. The second was that they involved the entirety of the church. The third now is that they're going to clarify what the actual problem is. They're clarifying what the actual problem is. Now, I think that it, the, the tone when you read this in um, verses, starting at, verses, uh, two, at verse 2 here, and you hear them say, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables, that it can sound like there's some sort of hierarchy that's being presented here. You know, preaching the word, serving tables. Now, whether there is or whether there is not, I'm suggesting that is not what they are saying. That's not the point. They're not trying to say, we're too important to serve tables or to serve widows, and they're not making the point, hey, what we're doing in preaching is more important than serving the widows. The, there's no reason, actually, for the competition. The point is that they are separate responsibilities that require separate people to do them. And one of the reasons I can say this with confidence is that the Greek word where it says 
uh, in verse 2, it is not right that we should give up uh, the preaching of the word, uh, the word of God to serve tables. The word serve is diakonia, you know, the word that we eventually get for deacons. So serve tables. But here's what's also interesting. Down in verse 4, where it says, again, speaking of the apostles, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The word that's being translated as ministry in that verse is the same Greek word, diakonia. So if you wanted to, to, to compare them and show that they're exactly similar as far as that verb, what's being said in verse 2 is that um, uh, we should, uh, it's not right that we should give up the preaching of the word of God to serve tables. And then it also says in verse 4, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the service of the word. Both of them are service. They're both things that need to be accomplished within the church. The idea is not, well, let me point out the more important ones. And since this is the more important job and we're the more important people, this is beneath us, so make sure you guys go find somebody to do it. That is not at all what's being communicated. Instead, what they're saying is, look, this is a problem that affects the entirety of the church. We need all of them to come together. They're also responsible for the health of this church itself. So let's lay the problem out before them. They clarify the problem by showing that there isn't a competition here. Instead, what we know is that there is a difference in jobs. We're just different people that God has gifted us differently. In Ephesians 4, verses 11 to 13, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. There are different jobs, and it begins very specifically there. Apostles and prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. So we see these titles given, but really what you see is all other duties as assigned as you progress through those verses where it says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And so it is our responsibility as a church to identify what is it that I should be doing to contribute to the church. What is my square, you know, space? What is the talent? What are the two talents, the five talents, the ten talents that God has given to me, to, to borrow the verbiage from the parable, and am I making the most of the talents that God has given to me? So when we look at that verse in chapter 6 or in uh, the verses of 2 and 4, and we see them saying, look, we need the whole church to come together because we have a serious problem that has the potential for causing a lot of division within the church, then what we need is to identify people that are going to solve this, that can actually do this. This is our job. This is our calling. There are people that have a calling or that should be chosen to do that. So the answer actually comes right out of it. And so this is what's fascinating. You see that it's actually the church itself that then becomes involved with solving the problem. So in between those two verses, I pointed out verse 2, where they say it's not right that we should give up preaching, and verse 
four, where we will devote ourselves to prayer, to the ministry of the word, but right in the middle is the actual solution that is developed in, in, in the middle of this for the problem, where it says, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Who's, who's choosing the people? It's not the apostles. He brought them all together. He made it clear, hey, I'm not saying this in a sense of competition. What I'm saying is that we have a real problem that needs a real solution that brings glory to God. And so they are leading the discussion, but they're put, the apostles are giving it right back to the church and saying, therefore, brothers, all of you, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and full of wisdom. This is your job, church, to do this thing. So, the four observations relating to the solution, they didn't look for prosecution, they looked for reconciliation. They were identifying who should be involved in solving this problem, and they brought the whole church in together, then they clarified the problem, you know, this is not a matter of competition, this is a matter of calling, so therefore, let's find the people, the right people, you choose them, church, who it is that should be, and then the last observation, the fourth observation about the solution is doing it, is actually executing this solution. Hey, this is, these are the kinds of people you should find. You're the ones responsible for finding them. And then this is what is absolutely uh, fascinating and, of course, glorious about this. So we have then in verses 5 and 6, the church then doing it. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Spirit, Philip, and uh, Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. What you may not realize about that list of seven men is that those are all Greek names. Now, we can't know with absolute certainty that every one of those seven were Hellenists. In other words, that they weren't the Hebrew folks. Because remember, it's the Hellenists who are saying it's our widows that are being neglected. Just because we didn't start out being taught Aramaic and basically growing up in the church. But once the apostles got involved and they said, hey, you guys are the ones that need to solve this. So this is what you should do. You should find people, you know, that are of good repute and full of the spirit and of wisdom. What the church did is they turned around and solved the problem. And they actually found seven guys with Greek names. So it makes perfect sense that those that felt that, they, that their widows were being neglected were at least some of them, if not all of them, were men with, that would have fallen within that group that were chosen to make sure that those things were taken care of. I mean, it, it is a wise solution. It is a God-honoring solution, and yet it came through the leadership of the apostles and also through organically through the church itself, through the members of the church that came together to say, well, we think that these guys fit the bill of being full of the spirit, of good repute, and of wisdom. And not only that, that last guy that's listed, Nicholas, by it saying a proselyte of Antioch, they not only said, hey, we're going to make sure that we're going to fill these slots with some uh, Hellenists, with some Greek guys, even though they're Jews, they, they speak Greek, they even grabbed a guy that was a Gentile 
That's, that's what that's saying there when it says that Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, they're even grabbing a guy that became a Christian but was not even Jewish to begin with. That's an even better solution. There is a, there's a diversity here that takes place in that particular circumstance that solves the problems and brings glory to God all in one. You know, these are the kinds of answers. These are the, these are the answers we're always longing for in conflict, right? Where we go, man, when God gets involved with solving the conflict, it ends up better than you ever could have even imagined. And that's what takes place here after they follow the direction. And of course, in their respective roles, the church chooses the men, but then the apostles doing their job also get involved again in verse 6, where they say, they, uh, these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. So you have the church fulfilling their role. You have the apostles fulfilling their role. Each of them have a calling. They're fulfilling their calling, and it actually is bringing great praise and great honor to the Lord. And in fact, it's, it's, it's increasing the church and deepening their individual um, spiritual walks as well. And then we see the result here in verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So again, when we see God's involvement of solving the conflict, not only do you have a resolution of the conflict itself, you actually see something much greater. You see much better. Look at the two different subjects that are given to us in verse 7. You have, first of all, that the word of God continued to increase, and that is separate from the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. So we see that there is, in fact, a deepening of their faith, that there is a spiritual walk that has been improved, that the word of God continued to increase. And separate from that, you have that a number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem. Deepening personal faith out of that conflict and an actual expansion of the kingdom as a result of that same conflict. This is what God does with interpersonal conflict when we seek his wisdom and we treat it in a biblical manner. The last thing I want anyone to think here is that somehow this is like a, a self-help list or this is how to deal, you know, here are three ways to deal with uh, interpersonal conflict within your family. That is absolutely not the case. For anyone that is not a believer, you're going to deal with interpersonal conflict all right. If you do not repent of your sin and commit yourself entirely to what Christ did on the cross for you, you are going to find that you are having to deal with some significant conflict on Judgment Day. You're going to hear three phrases, I never knew you, depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. I never knew you, depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. And at that point, it is too late. Now is the day of salvation. My Christian brothers and sisters, my family that's in here, I know you, you know me, 
I know for a fact that even though we are familiar with forgiveness and what it is that God has done for us in our lives, we still deal with conflict. We still deal with issues within our marriage. We still deal with conflict with friends, conflict at work. And I want to remind you, first of all, about your attitude relating to that conflict. A portion of what we just recited earlier when we looked at our confession of faith relating to providence. When you think about the conflict in your life, think about this, that the conflict that you're dealing with right now is according to his. So that conflict is according to God's infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will. And that that conflict is given to you to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. Is that your attitude about the conflict in your life? God has designed it. He has given it to you. You have an opportunity to handle it in a godly way, and it starts with recognizing that it's from the hand of God. So if you're going to complain about the conflict, you're complaining about your God. Just like the original issue was a legitimate issue, the widows were legitimately being neglected, but also it is illegitimate and it is sinful to complain and to whine and to murmur about the issue instead of dealing with the conflict and recognizing that this is too from God's hand in your life and you need to deal with it. And then, of course, that means that if you're going to deal with it, what you cannot do within the conflict, are you listening, please? What you cannot do within whatever conflict you're dealing with in your relationships is to seek prosecution. Because let me tell you the outcome of that. You're guilty. Do not seek prosecution when you are trying to resolve the, resolve the conflict in a godly way. Seek reconciliation. Now that comes through confession uh, you know, between the two of you and um, dealing with the issues. You don't sweep things under the rug, but there is definitely a difference between dealing with the issue and with actually trying to make sure that you prosecute and hold people accountable instead of saying, Lord, this is from your hand and it is right for me to be reconciled with this person. What must I do to be reconciled with this other person. And then from there it really is, okay, who should be involved in this reconciliation? Or who should be involved in, in my desire to be reconciled to this person? In a multitude of counselors there is wisdom. Do I need to talk to somebody else about this to get wisdom? Do I need to talk to someone from the church? Do I need to talk to an elder? Do I uh, need more biblical wisdom to try to solve this issue? But the fact of the matter is, what you can't do, besides not prosecuting, is you can't just ignore it. You've got to follow through and to seek God's wisdom, to seek it from his word, to seek it from those who are also of good repute, that are also full of spirit, that are also full of wisdom. And then you actually have to follow through. And then what God is demonstrating throughout his word, and specifically in this account, 
is that on the other side of whatever that conflict is that you're dealing with in your life, God can take this very thing in a way that you have absolutely no idea and turn it and take the roots of your faith and sink them deep and grow spiritual fruit in your life like you didn't even know was possible. And he can use the same point of conflict, the heat that exists right now, and actually use that to expand his kingdom so that his, so that the word of the Lord would increase and that it might prevail mightily. That is a completely different attitude about conflict in our lives versus what the world says. Dig in, silent treatment, anger, yelling, pouting, gossiping, complaining, holding a grudge. All of those things are 100% antithetical to what is being taught here, where we identify those that have their respective roles and they follow through on those roles and we deal with conflict in a way that honors the Lord and then we just turn around and say thank you Lord for all of the fruit that w that came as a result of this thank you that in your providence that according to the immutable counsel of your own will you brought this to bear in my life because of the fruit that I get to enjoy now and that brings great glory to you let's pray Lord, conflict, is, conflict is, is a real pain. It's really inconvenient. We love it when it's all smiles, high fives, hugs. But it's not always that way. And sometimes in even the closest of relationships is where we see conflict. And it hurts. But Lord, we know that you can take pain and you can take our mourning and turn it into dancing. We ask that you would do that within the, inter, within the relationships within this church. Help us to have a godly attitude. Help us to seek reconciliation with others. Help us to identify our roles within the church so that we are also creating a healthy environment, that we are holding others accountable where we should, that we're giving counsel where we should, that we're giving encouragement where we should. Lord, may we please you in how we deal with this, and may we see tremendous spiritual growth, growth in our personal lives and in the expansion of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.